0: Today's show is brought to you by Pleasureland RV, best in the Midwest. Learn more at PleasurelandRV.com. WCCO Outdoors on News Talk. 830 Rob Drieslein with you for the next one hour. Very excited to be here. I uh, just got back from a week out on the East Coast, enjoying spring break with my children, uh, joined some family out there. We like to uh, spend some time in North Carolina, coastal North Carolina, not quite as warm as Florida, but generally fewer people uh, than you'll see down Florida way. I like to get out there and do some bird watching. Uh, the water's colder than Florida, but my kids don't care, right? They're from Minnesota. Uh, so they, uh, they had a good time. I was kind of a working vacation, did a lot of work while I was out there, too. A uh, lot of hiking, a lot of walking along the beach. I'm, uh, I think if you listen to the show, you know I'm a, a bit of a wilderness advocate, I love, I love our public lands and in the interior of the continent, but man, oh man, I sure enjoy walking our national seashores also. That's a lot of fun, and um, I've done that with my kids for a few years. Uh, my uh, my daughter loves to go shelling. We, we spent the whole day on, along the Outer Banks looking for seashells. Uh, yeah, a lot of bird watching. I had a good time uh, doing some bird watching out there. Uh, one thing you notice, I, you know, if, if you spend much time on our lakes in Minnesota, you know how to identify a loon, right? Everybody knows the common loon. It's Minnesota State bird, rah, rah. Uh, when you're out there, you, you look out on, on the uh, the coastal ocean water, and you will quite often see a bird that's shaped exactly like a loon. Uh, and you look at it closer and you're like, well, the, the color's not right. And then you pull out a bird book and you realize it is a loon. It's the common loon. It's just in its winter plumage when they look very different from how they look uh, during the summer up here when they're in their, their regal black uh, plumage, I guess is the word the uh, the bird watchers would use. Uh, they're, they're much more of a mottled grayish white looking bird uh, on the coast during the winter and the the ones i was seeing on coastal north carolina are not quote unquote our loons i guess they tend to be more of the atlantic flyaway loons the ones you would find in new england on golden pond kind of thing uh, our loons <laughs> quote unquote minnesota our loons were very possessive of them they winter down on the gulf coast but they look the same they they lose that uh, summer plumage and they look very different uh, so it's it's kind of kind of neat to see uh, to see our loons uh, for, you know a good chunk of the year they're not here and that's what they look like you know one thing I uh, you, you sometimes think about is migration i I don't know maybe most listeners don't think about migration, but think about how how much work it is to migrate right to to hop up and fly from northern Minnesota all the way to the Gulf Coast and spend your winters there and then you know right about now they're going to start getting motivated to fly back up and sometimes I wonder what, what's the point of flying back to Minnesota? you got open water down there year round what's the idea and, Bird watchers who are much smarter than me will explain that. And you talk about, well, there's food up here, et cetera, et cetera, Uh, opportunities that that you don't have. But one thing that dawns on me while I'm watching a loon bob around out in the waves in in off-coastal North Carolina is that is a tough environment. Uh, You're dealing with tides. You're dealing with heavy winds. You're dealing with waves. You're dealing with predators. I mean, everything in the ocean is trying to eat you. Uh, and when you watch that, and, and and you see some storms roll through, you could see why a loon might say, you know what, I'm I'm gonna head north for the summer where the waters, yeah, we we get some heavy winds and some waves on some lakes only. But trust me, it's a heck of a lot calmer uh, on a Minnesota lake than it is uh, it is off coastal North Carolina. Uh, and I and I see why perhaps they they bail out and decide to do their nesting up here. So anyway, some thoughts on on the loons that I watch out in coastal North Carolina. The big story that broke while I was gone this week, uh, down on Pool 6 of the Mississippi River, uh, yes, they they, they call the sections of the river between the dams pools because in a way they're more like a series of lakes than than a river. That's a whole other rant that I I will get into another time perhaps. But uh, Pool 6, that's my old stomping grounds. That's where I grew up hunting and fishing and being a river rat and just learning to love the outdoors. Uh, Pool 6, in my opinion and I'm slanted because it's it's where I grew up. I think pool 6 is the most pristine part of the Mississippi River downstream from the Twin Cities. Obviously, upstream Mississippi River is a free-flowing natural river and it's gorgeous. You get downstream, you've got dredging, it's a very different type of body of water than the St. Croix or even the Mississippi River upstream from the Twin Cities. But it's a gorgeous chunk of river, and like I say, I think in many ways, I think, I think Lake Pepin has filtered a lot, a lot of the pollutants from the Twin Cities by the time you get down to Pool 6, and so I love it down there, and I think it's a beautiful part of the river that's perhaps underappreciated, which is just fine by me because then I can go down there and, and not be overrun with people. But the big story is that Pool 6, uh, commercial fishermen caught 30 invasive carp in, I guess, one day, or I don't know if it was one net, Uh, That was all of the news this week. Uh, We're talking about the Asian carp that are working their way up from the south. They got loose from southern fish farms. Uh, Distinctive from the European carp, which has been here uh, for over 100 years in this part of the world. Also invasive. Also arguably our most destructive invasive species in a lot of ways. Very damaging to a lot of wetlands. And it's because of the invasive European carp that we're worried about invasive Asian carp that are working their way up. There's four species, what, bighead, silver, grass, and black carp, I think are the four names uh, that are originally from Asia that were released on these southern fish farms and are working their way up. They're very destructive. They jump out when boats come up. You've probably seen the footage on the Illinois River, the damage they cause. Uh, and it's heartbreaking for me personally to think that that stretch of river could be a spot where these invasive species are now hitting critical mass and could be really damaging uh, you, you, they've, they've wrecked a good chunk of the Illinois river. I've always said if they get into the Minnesota river, the Minnesota river looks a lot like the Illinois river to me. And I think they will be every bit as damaging to the Minnesota river. And I worry that they're going to be you know, really destructive for the Mississippi also. Um, I hate to think about a kid, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old kid. Like I was having the time of his life learning to hunt and fish on the Mississippi river, uh, dealing with a less interesting and a less pristine place than I did 30 years ago because uh, invasive carp uh, have now uh, potentially hit critical mass in that area. We'll, we'll have a follow-up story on that, I presume, in, in outdoor news. There's a whole whole bunch of hair, a whole bunch of lo- uh, baggage attached to that. Like When are we going to in install some sort of barrier like at Lock and Dam 5A to stop these fish from advancing upstream and, and wrecking havoc? Uh, on Lake Pepin and other waterways north of Minnesota River, St. Croix. That whole conversation is a little bit frustrating for me because it almost means like we're just saying, well, downstream from 5A, <laughs> we're just writing it off, which includes Pool 6, which I just described as is, uh, is an important spot for me. Uh, so we'll we'll talk more about that story in coming weeks. We have got uh, a number of guests this week. I'll have Les Meister with me a little bit later. Uh, he's he's joined us once before. We're going to talk to him about uh, this crossbow bill. He and I will argue about that. We'll probably talk shed hunting in our final segment with a guy who I'm not making this up. His last name is Shed, Joe Shed, S-H-E-A-D. It's it's spelled different, but he loves shed hunting, Joe Shed. Uh, again, not making that up. Uh, but when we come back after this first break, we're going to talk with Brad Lila, the gentleman who caught the, the big... Uh, State record-tying catch-and-release Northern Pike. So don't go away. Lots more WCCO Outdoors coming at you after these messages. Welcome back, everybody, to WCCO Outdoors. Rob Jerisline with you for another segment. Uh, We go till 6 o'clock. Normally, you'd have 60 minutes then, but not tonight. No 60 minutes on WCCO Radio this evening. Blois Olson will be hosting his latest Fluence Forum uh, that's a panel of guests to talk about caregiving and long-term care across Minnesota. So stay tuned for Blois at 6 o'clock, then at 7, Timberwolves pregame show, and 7.30, Timberwolves at the Golden State Warriors. So lots cooking on the station as, it, as the uh, clock unfolds this evening. Uh, I want to jump in immediately with my uh, next guest, uh, a gentleman who caught a big old northern pike on Lake Malac. Uh, his name is Brad Leela. Brad, are you with us? I am, yes. Hey, Brad, thanks a lot for joining the broadcast. I appreciate you uh, calling in. Uh congratulations. You are uh with the co owner of the state catch and release Northern Pike Record. Uh big pike you caught on Lake Blacks on January twenty second. Uh, uh gosh, pretty proud of that. You you're you're pretty big time fisherman and uh, and feeling good about uh owning a record like that.
1: Uh yeah, yeah. Thank thank you very much. Um yeah, I am pretty proud of it. You know, you fish your whole life for uh for something like that, for even an opportunity like that and uh, to actually get get the fish through the hole and uh, get a measurement on her and get her back. Uh yeah, it was a heck of a yeah, heck of an accomplishment after spending a whole life trying now trying to catch a big fish like that, right?
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it so it measured 46 and a quarter inches and uh another guy and I were talking about what what the estimate was on the weight. What what do you have any idea between I am I'm, I'm probably putting it between twenty five and thirty pounds. Is that what you were thinking?
1: Well, you know, there's online calculators right. where you can put in the weight and in the girth, and we did get a good girth on it of twenty three and three quarters inches. So one calculator had it at twenty nine pounds, and the other one was up to thirty two pounds. So okay. probably
0: somewhere in between there. Okay, so that's an exceptional girth, and so that's maybe why it would it would kind of put it into that higher range. Probably a female, northern pike full of eggs. So, I mean, we could be talking about, you know, a 30-pound-plus fish. Now, we need to point out, this is the catch and release record. The certified record, which is a catch and kill, is substantially larger by weight. Uh, the DNR is evaluating a lot of those older records. We should we should point that. I think we had uh, um, Shannon Fisher on from the DNR last fall talking a little bit about that, but let's talk about the story here. So it's January twenty second. You're on malac You're you're. Uh, this was not a tip up, right? You were using a rod and reel. What were you uh, per- targeting, Brad?
1: Yeah, so it it was kind of a tip up. I was okay. using a finicky fooler, which is basically, uh you know, you put your rod out there, so it uh, it acts like a tip up, and a flag goes off. Oh, okay. But then you have <laughs> the
0: ability to yeah. Have but, then, the ability but then you to can, use a the rod then. So yeah, then you can play it with your rod. Interesting. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Um, no, I, I was targeting uh, targeting big pike. Okay. Yeah, I, had, uh, I had I had a big uh, big sucker minnow down there about a and a twelve inch here, and uh, yeah, it happened. It worked.
0: Nice, nicely done. You you played this fish for thirty minutes. Why was it important to you to uh, release it? You could have kept it, right?
1: Um, you know what? It, it, was, it was important for me to release her, but on Mille Lacs, um, you can't keep a fish over thirty inches. You can't keep a northern over thirty inches, regardless. So even if I wanted to keep her, I, I couldn't have. But uh, I would have released her anyways.
0: Shame on me for not knowing that. Uh, I didn't. I didn't realize you can't keep a pike longer than thirty inches on Lake Malak. That year round, or was is that a nice regulation? Yeah, I think it's yeah, it's year round. Okay. All right. Well, I want to encourage folks to always check the regs <laughs> before they go. Either way, the Northern Pike season is closed statewide on inland waters until the uh, what the May 13th fishing opener. So, uh, you got a lot people have lots of times to nail that down. Uh but uh yeah, so you were uh you played this fish for 30 minutes. You you were using braided line, you said, but you were a little worried that what your fluorocarbon might uh, pop once it hit the ice.
1: Yeah, I yeah, I've had uh, I've had fluorocarbon knots break quite a, quite a few times the last few years, so that worried me a little bit. Plus, it was I really downsized this year. I'm going for northern pike. Typically, I would use like a 30 pound floral, uh leader, but uh, I was having so many fish grab and drop it last year, the last two years actually. That I uh, downsized to a uh, 15 pound fluorocarbon, so I, I wasn't so sure that uh, it'd be able to handle a you know big big northern cutting
0: at it, and it actually held up. You listen to WCCO Outdoors. I'm Rob Drieslein. We are chatting with Brad Leela, a gentleman who caught a massive northern pike that he released on January 22nd. It has tied the record for catch-and-release pike in our fine state of Minnesota. Catch-and-release records, I think, are about 10 years old, and they're adding more. The DNR is adding more. Uh, again we talked to shannon fisher about that a little bit more so you hooked this fish and you you said uh you hollered for a couple other guys to come and help you were they guys you were fishing with or did they have to be in the area tell us how that played out
1: uh yeah there was there was two guys uh fishing i i uh, know them a little bit and they're about 150 to 200 yards away from from my shack and uh yeah, I was uh, I was thinking I, I might need some help with this fish because I'd already fought it for like 10, 15 minutes. So I started waving, and uh, um, and uh, the guys came over to help me out, and I was very appreciative of them. Um, you know, they were able to uh, able to film it, which was which was That's really cool, awesome. and uh, helped me with some measurements and some photos, and uh, which which was really nice. I mean, to to get her back in the water as quickly as we did, it was it was great. You know, if you do that alone, just so difficult.
0: So. Sure. Absolutely. Is uh, is targeting big pike, is that a personal priority priority for you? Is that something you, a uh, fish you like to pursue?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been chasing big pike ever since, uh, ever since I like, could drive. <laughs> I've been, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. And uh Mille Lacs is just, just such a special body of water and has, so many big pike in there. It, uh, it's a great, great location.
0: Let me ask you one semi-controversial question. Uh, Mille Lacs was reopened to spearing a few years ago. Have you seen, has that affected the size structure in, in your opinion at all? I mean, clearly, uh, you know, if you're still catching state record catching and at least pike out of that lake, there's got to be some big ones. I'd like to think uh, that it has not affected it, but I, I thought I'd get your take quickly.
1: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I guess, um, you know, you'll, the, the numbers of big pike I think are, are, are real. They're, they're up there, but the amount of pike seems to, I, I don't want to say it's dropped. It just seems like they're, they're bigger pike and you don't get as many, you don't get as many 30 inches. Mm. You don't get as many, you know, 30, 32, 34 inchers, sure. but, uh, but, you, but you do get some big ones.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of factors that can influence the, you know, the size structure of, of a fish in a lake. Uh, do you you uh, yeah, exactly you catch any walleyes while you're at it? What uh, you got a personal forecast for uh, walleye fishing up there by any chance? <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I do. I fish. Uh, I fish a lot of walleyes too. So um, it was a good year. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I caught a lot of a uh, lot of fish, surprisingly, in a slot out there. Okay. And uh, but but not you know I don't I think my biggest walleye all winter was only twenty six inches or so, which is a bit odd. Usually you do a little bit better than that. But uh, I think uh, there's a lot of uh, and 11, 12-inch, that size class, mm-hmm. uh, caught more more this winter uh, in that size class than I ever have. So I think uh, the, the future looks good in, in, you know, two, three years from now. But there's a bit of a gap in between there. Okay. That bodes
0: well for 2024, 2025, something like that. And we do have a, kind of a liberalized uh, walleye rig on Malac uh, this coming open water season. We talked about that a couple weeks ago here on the broadcast uh, so that's uh, something to look forward to on the big lake. Well, Brad, thanks a lot. I'm, I'm running out of time here. I sure appreciate you uh, joining me on the show, and congratulations. Thank you for catching and releasing a big fish like that so someone else can catch it uh, another time.
1: Yeah, thank, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate
0: right. it. Thanks a lot. Brad Leela, the co-owner of the state record catch and release uh, Northern Pike record here in Minnesota. Uh, there's a lot. You know, if you want to see the whole list, of all the state record fish in Minnesota, go to mndnr.gov and just search state record fish program, state record fish, something like that. You search that, you can uh, you can find the whole list of all the catch and release records that I mentioned, as well as the certified state records, which are your, uh, your catch and kill fish. We are out of time for this segment. We're going to uh, grab a break. We'll come back. I want to argue with uh, crossbow hunting with uh, my friend Tim Lesmeister. So don't go away. More WCCO Outdoors after these messages. Welcome back, everybody. WCCO Outdoors, Rob Jerislein with you for uh, another half hour. We're here until the top of the hour. Uh, I want to jump in pretty fast with my old buddy, Tim Lesmeister. Tim, I think he's been on WCCO Outdoors with me once before, but he and I have done a lot of radio together over the years. He's down Florida way still, I bet, uh, spending some time down there during the winter. Tim, are you with me, my friend?
2: I am, and I'm still in Florida. You are correct. uh, Out today uh, chasing... What we thought was going to be some uh, big sheephead out about 20 miles out uh, in the bay, in the, uh, in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. And it was um, nothing what we thought we were getting into. A sheephead, there weren't any. Some groupers, some snappers, uh, a lot of uh, Spanish mackerel. And we even hooked a, a great big shark on video. Oh, wow. And it was a lot of fun. Great fishing today. I had some great fishing yesterday. Uh, the fishing right now in Florida is phenomenal. You know, we get that little lull period up in the north in March and April, and uh, it's a good time to head south, that's for sure. Absolutely. I was uh, hanging around saltwater
0: myself here this past week a little further north than you. I was talking about it earlier up in North Carolina. Didn't do any fishing. Uh, did a lot of beach walking. Saw a lot of jellyfish, a lot of dead t- uh, cannonball jellyfish, a few man-of-war. Uh, did a lot of shelling. Had a good time with the, uh, the wife and kids, Tim.
2: Uh, I'm, I, I'm into shells. I'm telling you right now that I, I, I am addicted to shelling. So you have to be very, very careful if you get around the shells because you find yourself going through withdrawal symptoms. As soon as you get home,
0: you're going to have to bond with my dad and my daughter. Uh, my daughter <laughs> is like an expert on shells. She can name them all. It's, it's all great to me, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to get together and talk about that sometime. Hey, I wanted to have you on to talk a little bit about this, uh, latest crossbow bill. Uh, I, uh, Outdoor News had a story on this last week. Uh, This bill was around last year. It would basically allow crossbows throughout the entire archery season. Right now, there's uh, language in, in state law that says anyone age 60 and over can use a crossbow during the regular archery season. It's my understanding, it's house file, 2716 would strike that altogether, and basically anybody then could use a crossbow during the uh, regular archery season, this is something I have generally opposed. It's something you've generally been in favor of. Uh, I tend to be a little maybe more conservative on on allowing new technology into our hunting and fishing sports. You're generally like, "Hey, let's let's do it. It will bring more people into the sport." I'll let you talk, Tim. You let you like this idea, right?
2: Well, I think that there's going to be a lot of gnashing of teeth. There's whining and crying, howling and screaming. And what we're going to see is all these guys that are using compound and traditional bows during the archery season are going to be just literally yelling at the top of their lungs to make sure that this thing doesn't go through. But there's enough support right now. I honestly believe it's going to pass. And it's about time. So many states allow crossbow hunting during the regular archery season. What has taken Minnesota so long? And it seems to me that there's not going to be that, uh, that drastic increase in numbers in the field where we're going to see a huge uh, drop in the deer population because of crossbow hunters. It's going to be negligible at best. So to me, it seems like what you're doing is, is you're opening up the sport to a lot of individuals that might not want to hunt during the rifle season but uh, don't feel that they have the time to invest in the practice that is required from a a normal bow, a normal compound bow with a crossbow, trust me, you can get really accurate and you can do, uh, you know, a lot of uh, very accurate shooting uh, with a crossbow in just a very limited amount of time uh, with practice. So I think it's going to open the sport up to a lot of people that would definitely not be in the field during that time of the year. And I think it's great, more the merrier as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, and, and I agree with your uh, description of how it, it would unfold. The problem is that it's no longer a primitive season then, uh, when when everybody can go out with a crossbow and be pretty effective. And by the way, you know, you and I, last time we talked about this, we didn't get to, into it on air, but uh, they're using scopes on these crossbows uh, that, you know, that that you know, that's a whole different animal using a scope instead of pins. Uh, so we, we can argue more about that, but... I do agree with you on one point, which is I think it's probably got some momentum this year. In the past, it seems like the key authors on this have been Republicans, uh, and and it hasn't gone real far, especially when you had split government. This time around, we got a couple of DFLers: uh, Samantha Vang, DFLer from Brooklyn Center, uh, and I believe uh, Fong, her DFLer, St. Paul. I believe he's uh, committee chair uh they're the lead authors on this and WCCO Outdoors has learned that the DFL has the trifecta. So if you got some key authors, committee chairs from the majority party on board with this, I got to think a lot of Republicans are going to vote for it. This might just have the momentum to pass this year.
2: And when it passes, you're going to see two or three journalists come out <laughs> from under the rock and they're going to become the new the new crossbow hunting guru who is going to write all these great stories for outdoor news and it's going to be all about how you can uh, set up in certain quadrants of the woods to get that nice long shot you know i mean it's there's so many facets to, to the different styles of bow hunting traditional bow hunters used to scoff at the compound guys when they yeah, first came around they had fair. stabilizers on their bows and they had sight pins and and, you know, it was like, oh, man, you can stay in there and just draw your bow and hold for an hour. And it was like, that. that's not even archery. And then and all of a sudden, the, the, the guys that were shooting those traditional bows made the transition into the, to the compound bows because it was fun. It was a great sport. And you're going to see that, too, now with a lot of these older guys that are, you know, shooting an 85-pound off compound bow or even having a little difficulty pulling those back now are going to shift into the – Crossbow And the guys that are in the compound bows are going to go, oh, you guys are, are, you know, you should, you know, know, we look down upon you with these crossbows. And, yes, sometimes the scopes are actually more expensive than the actual bow, but the accuracy is phenomenal.
0: I I think the jump from traditional archer to compound is, it's significant. It's not as significant as the jump from a compound bow to a crossbow. It's a whole different animal. And, I, and I, I don't think it's a primitive hunt anymore. And I think it could potentially affect the length of seasons. If we're talking about killing more deer, I think some of the gun hunters could get a little angry about that. Again, you and I have talked about this off air a bit. And there are other states that have allowed crossbows during the regular archery season, where I don't necessarily think what I just described has happened. I don't know that they've had to limit the, uh, the number of days as a result. But I, I think it's a possibility. The other thing, and I'll let you address this, Tim. Uh, if everybody, I think there'll be a short term blip. It'll be a nice economic gain for the outdoor industry in this state as everybody runs out and buys a crossbow. Uh, the problem is, unlike compounds, which guys tend to replace every three or four years, that doesn't really happen with crossbows, correct?
2: That's not going to happen because the crossbows basically stay in tune, they don't have to be serviced. Uh, they are, you know, pretty much right out of the box, ready to go. And again, it's just a matter of mounting the scope on properly and getting it sighted in. At that point, there, uh, you'll probably never take that bow in for service. Uh, they're they're just that reliable. Yeah. And as far as the season goes, I wouldn't shorten the season. I would I would make the season longer. <laughs> Uh, but I would actually uh, just limit the amount of uh, antlerless tags that, that go out to these certain mm. regions. Uh, well, Tim, that's going to anger the gun say.
0: hunters. That That's going to mean the gun hunters get fewer antlerless tags. That's exactly my point. They're not going to like that. There's going to be backlash to that, right?
2: Oh, there's going to be backlash all the, all around from all right. traditional guys, the, the compound hunters, the firearms hunters. I, I venture to say that even the muzzle loader guys will figure out some reason why these guys shouldn't be out in the woods with their crossbows but do you remember for how long it took us to get scopes on the on the muzzle loader mm-hmm. rifles it was crazy and it was it was very Don't controversial you and you yeah, and I, I argued on, about you
0: you and I argued a lot about that and I will offer a mea culpa that ended up kind of being a non a non issue a non thing
2: i think the same thing's going to happen with the well, not exactly the same thing. There's going to be more deer taken early season. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. But what they should do is they should uh, they should manage that that deer population using you know antlerless quotas and uh, and uh, the uh, buck management practices and allow the seasons to you know literally make a, a whitetail hunting you know basically all fall into the midwinter. I mean, come on.
0: I think you need to write a column about that for Outdoor News, Tim. I think it generates some nice letters to the editor.
2: <laughs> I can do that. I will. Yeah, yeah, good topic.
0: Well, hey, thanks for uh, joining me for a segment. Good content as usual. Always fun to banter with you and argue a little bit about uh, some of these topics. And uh, we'll do it again. We'll see if this actually passes. I, however, you feel about it, I think this could be the year. And and like you and I talked off air, I, you know, I'm starting to feel like uh, the crossbows during the general. Archery season is, uh, what's the Japanese proverb, uh, get out of the way of, of a tsunami. I, I think it's inevitable.
2: Yeah, I do, too. I have my fingers crossed that it's going to go, and, yeah, Rob, it's always fun.
0: All right. Thanks a lot, buddy. Take care. All right. We'll see you. That's our friend Tim Lesmeister. You can read him at Outdoor News, OutdoorNews.com. Why don't we uh, get in a break? We're going to talk uh, about shed hunting with a gentleman named Joe Shed. when we return. Tis the season for shed hunting. You're listening to WCCO Outdoors. Final segment of this week's broadcast of WCCO Outdoors. Rob Jerisline here until the top of the hour. Then uh, stay tuned. No 60 Minutes tonight. Instead, Blois Olson will host his latest Fluence Forum. Uh, The topic is caregiving and long-term care across Minnesota. So stay tuned for that. That will run from 6 to 7, then 7 o'clock. Timberwolves pregame show. And then the T-Wolves at the Warriors at 7.30. But, hey, we got a few more minutes to talk uh, one more outdoor topic, and I want to have a gentleman join us. He's a regular contributor to my newspaper, Outdoor News, uh, OutdoorNews.com, and his name is Joe Shed, and the topic is shed hunting. Uh, Joe, are you with me? I'm here, Rob. Hey, I appreciate you checking it out. Joe, you live uh, up in the, what, the Louis Superior area, and I'm just curious, did you get a good look at that Aurora Borealis this past week?
3: I did. It was probably the best one I've ever seen. It was awesome.
0: Yeah, I, I happened to be, <laughs> be on spring break down in uh, North Carolina, so I, I didn't see it uh, this year, but uh, man, oh man, it, it sounded like it was like a top 50 solar storm of all time and some of the best uh, viewing of the northern lights that folks have, have ever seen. Uh, you got you got a good look up there, huh? Yeah, it was, it was pretty incredible. Awesome. Well, Joey, every year yeah, you submit a story or two about shed hunting. Uh, We're talking about looking for antlers that white-tailed deer and and other species, elk, moose, uh, antlers that they have dropped uh, toward uh, as as we get into the heart of winter, and then they drop into the snow. And now as the snow is receding, a pretty good time to go look for them. Uh, How did you get so into shed hunting?
3: Um, I guess it started back when I was in college. Um, uh, One of my roommates back in college, was uh, you know an avid hiker, and he would just go out hiking in the woods and come with natural type. And, and uh, he found some. Uh, you know, I'd heard about shed hunting before, but it just seemed like you know a mystery. Like how do you how do you even go about doing it? And then he found some one day on a hike and just brought them home and just kind of looking at them and turning them over in my hands and just got me fired up. And so uh, he's the one that kind of got me into to go and looking for them.
0: Well, where'd you go to school? Was it in good uh, whitetail deer hunting country?
3: Yeah, it was uh, UW Stevens
0: Point over in Wisconsin. Ah, yeah, you bet. Yeah, a lot of a lot of great deer hunting in Wisconsin. A lot of a lot of great deer habitat. You know, deer are a species of the transition, they say. And you look at a map of Wisconsin; that whole state is like transition zone. That's why there's so many deer, and it's it's a great place to grow deer and, and grow nice antlers for uh, for guys like you to go search for them. So what? So did I kind of summarize it accurately? Uh, they dropped their antlers. What? January maybe even into February and so right now as the snow is starting to recede is a really good time to find these antlers that have that have dropped correct
3: yeah I mean this is this is my favorite time is you know you can go out there and chase them around all winter long as they as they fall off and I I used to do all that but um, you know our, our deer numbers up north are so low right now I just I'd rather just you know wait till they're all down wait till the snow is melting rather than you know Keep you know beating the same trails over and over, but yeah, this is definitely my favorite time of year as that snow starts to melt away and all the antlers are down. I actually did see a buck uh, this week, a pretty nice one that still had a full rack.
0: So, no kidding!
3: Wow. They, they should be mostly set out by now.
0: Man, by the end of March, still a a a, a, a whitetail buck still holding his antlers. That's uh, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. So, any tips, any tricks? I, I mean, are there some key places that you tend to go look? Are there logical places to search for antlers, or is it pretty darn random?
3: Yeah, I mean it's. I'll say it's kind of like you know being a fisherman. You don't just show up at a lake and just start casting. You know, you're looking for structure. You're looking for weed beds or drop offs or rock piles, something like that. Um, it's the same with sheds. You know, it's not just blindly walking through the woods. Um, um, I'm always keeping direction in mind. I'm always, you know, I'm looking for that south-facing hillside or the southern edge of a forest where, where it gets more direct sunlight. The deer will sit there like a cat on a windowsill, soaking up the sun there. And, uh, you know, the snow melts there first, it's easier for to travel, easier for to find food. So that's, that's one thing I'm always looking for. Um, you know, obviously, bedding area is really close to food sources. Um, if you have an agricultural field, um, you know, and, and like, you know, some nice bedding area like pine trees or cedars or something like that that are really close by, that's, you know, that's really good. And, you know, it makes the deer don't have to travel far to, to go between food and cover. So that's always something to look for, too.
0: What about uh, like fence lines? Well, sometimes deer, you know, when they're crossing over or under a, a fence line, sometimes maybe you know nick their antler or just enough to knock it off. Had any luck uh, around fence lines?
3: Yeah, that's that's kind of always like the first tip you get when you're shed hunting is look around <laughs> fence lines. And it took me it took me many many years to actually find one along the fence. But the the principle is sound. Anytime they have to jump over an obstacle. Um, You know, fences, you know, or ditches, too. I've found them, like, laying in the bottom of a ditch or a creek. You know, any place they have to jump, you know, the impact can knock them loose. But, yeah, I I have found a few on fences now, uh, particularly out west.
0: But... There are a few rules around this. I mean, first of all, if you find an antler in Minnesota or Wisconsin just laying on the ground, uh, like we're describing, that's open game. You can pick that up and and possess it. If it's still, you know, if it's a dead deer, a dead buck, and it's still attached to its body, then you you should contact the conservation officer and and get a permit, correct?
2: Right.
0: So, yeah, be aware of that. The other thing is how west... Uh, there are actually shed hunting seasons out there because, they, you know, you're talking about elk. You're talking about mule deer that tend to yard up. They tend to be in one area. They don't want people going and pestering those animals you know, and, and jumping them in the winter when they're already stressed. Uh, and so several states out west have seasons that go to – do you even know when they start? Is it like April 1st or is it even later, maybe May 1st? Oh, I,
3: think, I think it's May 1st, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Yeah. And uh, uh, what was it? Wyoming just passed some, uh,
0: they're going to have like,
3: uh, you're going to have to have a license now if you're a non-resident and the non-resident season is going to open a week later than the resident (laughs)
2: season. Um,
3: Yeah. There's all kinds of stuff. Uh, Utah has a, a, a course that you have to take, you know, so that you're, learn how to not harass animals. It's it's really gotten regulated out west. I haven't heard anything like that further east, but, yeah, it's a big deal out there.
0: Well, and I'm all for regulations to prevent harassing the, the elk and the deer, et cetera, during a stressful time for them. But, man, that Wyoming thing you just mentioned, is a, a, a non-resident season for for searching for sheds, man, oh, man, that's, that's milking the non-residents for all they can get, huh? <laughs> it, it really is, yeah. Wow, yeah, don't get me started. That's that's a whole a <laughs> whole other issue. Well, uh, any final tips before we let you go, Joe? I, I, I don't know. You have a website or anything where you offer some of these tips, or should folks just uh, read read some of your ideas and maybe a forthcoming edition of Outdoor News?
3: Yeah, I do have a website. It's called GoShadHunting dot and, and I've got a blog on there with some tips. Um, but yeah, I guess you know the biggest thing you know find food, find bedding area, close proximity. Um, be cognizant of uh, the direction. i always be looking for that southern exposure, whether it's a hillside or forest edge. Um, those are kind of the, the you know, biggest things I key in on.
0: GoShedHunting.com. Was that the website, Joe? Yeah. Yep. Go, cool. GoShedHunting.com. We're we're down to our final minute here, but you're probably getting ready to start to think fishing? Definitely. Are you a, you a steelhead guy up there? I'm
3: not. Uh, that's that's my shed season, so I, I can't do both. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Gotcha. Well, Joe, I appreciate you uh, spending a segment with me and uh, talking about a you know a fun late winter activity. Good thing to do maybe when people are all out, out uh, checking their uh, maple syrup buckets. Correct?
3: Right. For sure. Good.
0: Well, Joe. Hey, thank you. Have a great week. Thanks, Rob. All right. Take care. Joe Shed. Go dot com. If you want some more details on how to go uh, participate in uh, searching for shed antlers this time of year. Well, hey, great stuff. I appreciate uh, all our guests. Uh, we had uh, Joe Shed, We had uh, Brad Leela talking to us about his big northern pike, and we had my friend Tim Lesmeister arguing with me about whether or not we should allow crossbows during the archery season. Uh, reminder, uh, there is no 60 Minutes. We've got uh, Blois Olson coming up next, and then the Timberwolves, 7 uh, o'clock pregame, 7.30 tip-off. I want to thank Jonathan Lowe here. I want to thank all of our listeners who joined us for the past hour. Everybody have a great week out of doors. Rob Jerislein signing off for WCCO Outdoors.